I'm glad that you're here. Let's, uh, let's just jump right in. Uh, we are in, uh, actually, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, as we began our series last, uh, last Sunday night, we are endeavoring to preach through Peter's letters, so First and Second Peter. And um, uh, w- along with that, I want to be able to uh, bring to you some of these passages from Peter's sermon, such as why last week we read from Acts 2, this week we read from Acts chapter 3. Uh, it's profound to read what Peter was actually preaching uh, along with what Peter is actually writing. Uh, last Sunday, we spent some time uh, developing uh, or... It, Maybe not developing, but just examining the life of Peter, uh, seeing who Peter the man is, uh, which I think is really important because um, all of what Peter writes in First and Second Peter in these letters are born out of, and this is what we kind of talked about, are they are derived out of his transformation. Peter's life, as we uh, looked at a while uh, last week, it undergoes an incredibly life-altering change. As soon as he sees the risen Lord, much like Thomas, I imagine Peter seeing the risen Christ and being and having the same sort of confession, my Lord and my God. All of those things that he had remembered, all of a sudden they became crystal clear to him. All of these things are true. And such is why uh, Peter becomes all the more bold in his witness. In the sermon we just read, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin calling them out about how they were the ones who killed this prince of life. That's boldness. That's courage. That's audacity. Uh, The audacious Peter, he doesn't change much per se in that type of his personality. He still is the audacious Peter and yet he's just audacious not for himself but for the things of Christ. Which is what I love. Uh, which is why I love Peter uh, so much. But he spends all of the, basically his whole time in, in, in Acts and in these letters sort of expounding on uh, the transformation that he uh, experiences. And the key point that we were making last week is that Peter's name, which we uh, defined as the rock or a, a stone, so to speak, that Peter came to realize that he wasn't the rock on which his own life stood, nor was he the rock on which the church stood. It was Jesus. Jesus was the cornerstone. Jesus was the church's rock which made everything else stable. Peter's instability was something that he learned firsthand. And it was only possible for him to learn who his true stability was by first learning how unstable he was. Of course, he learned that very profoundly. But such is, I think, the inspiration behind these letters... Peter uh, going through that transformation, going through that change, going through that very difficult season of denial, and yet even still being brought back into Christ's fellowship. And here he articulates the hope. So well he articulates the hope which these tattered churches, these frazzled, stressed, uh, uh, persecuted believers could find in the word of God. And he presses into it. He presses into the true grace of God throughout these letters. And I think that's what I want to examine as we go throughout this series. As Peter is looking at grace through the lens of something that he has experienced. He's not just talking about it in this ivory tower sort of theoretical way. He's experienced firsthand. He has experiential sort of uh, intimacy with the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Such as why he preaches it so boldly. Such as why he writes about it so passionately. 
So here, the, we'll just kind of get into it. Uh, we're in First Peter chapter 1. Um, this is a letter, as we noted last week, was written in the early 60s. Early 60s AD, so right in the middle of the first century. And as he writes there, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the strangers, strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This region we would know as modern day Turkey. So it's right around there. And all historical indications point to Peter writing this letter to a group of believers. A bunch of different congregations. But they were mainly primarily Gentile believers. They were not Jews necessarily. Which is significant if you consider how he addresses them. Notice again verse 1. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is significant. That Peter is making this connection to these believers. Scattered strangers literally translates to dispersed exiles. The concept of dispersion you might know from history, like the diaspora, where the Jews were scattered because of persecutions. And such is why this term dispersion is usually reserved for Jewish believers who are scattered into all the ends of the earth. And such is why it's interesting that Peter implores or employs excuse me, the same terminology to describe these Gentile believers... Gentiles like you and me as elect exiles. They too. They were part of the kingdom of God. They too were a part of this family. This family had derived all the way back from Abraham. Yes, even now to this day, he is telling them that you are part of this family, this line. And yes, they could feel this Feel the tension of their exile because of their faith in Christ. Also because of the persecutions they were during because of Emperor Nero. But it's so remarkable to me that what Peter's doing. He's indicating, he's indicating so strongly what these uh, believers, what these Christians had as their position in Christ. That they, through pure mercy, they had been engrafted into the family of God. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. He talks about how uh, the Gentiles had been grafted in. They had been transferred. They had been brought in through adoption. They had been brought into the family of promise. The family which had been promised, by the way, all the way back with Abraham himself. Let me read you this wonderful verse from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 verse 6 says this. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. And of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. There, Paul is, is declaring the same sort of truth. That it, it's not by bloodline that you are brought into this family of promise. It's by faith. And yes, to you, scattered believers that are everywhere that are being dispersed. You are part of the family of God. You are elect exiles, as he says here. Therefore, Peter's making a really strong statement regarding the church of God. It's comprised of individuals who belong to the kingdom because of faith, which is describing you and me too. We are part of that um, audience. 
So you can see in the first two verses, Peter is packing in a ton of weighty theology. He's not just uh, skimming over. He's not just greeting them. This is why we don't skip over the salutations to the letters. Because oftentimes the apostles love to jam-pack theology into these greetings. Our greetings in our emails are like, hey, how are you doing? They're talking about tenets of doctrine and theology in their greetings. (laughs) That we can spend weeks sort of unpacking. Which we, we may do, I don't know. But what he endeavors to do in these letters... Is to remind them of their standing. To remind them of what they have in Christ. This sort of living, breathing comfort, so to speak. And such is what I want to speak on tonight. That these elect exiles, what assurance could they have? They are in a place, they are in a time when they are being persecuted for their faith. Where they are being literally brought in and executed because of what they believed. What assurance could they have that God was concerned for them? What confidence could they have that God cared about them? What comfort could they find in their exile? In this dispersion, in their estrangement, in their exile? Well, I think we're going to jump a little bit in this first chapter. But I think he offers two remarkable assurances that they could stand on. That they could bank in and rest in. The first one comes in verse 2, which I've entitled the assurance of God's choice. The assurance of God's choice. Look at verse 2 again. Elect, these strangers that have been scattered are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. In one verse... In one verse, Peter uses two words that we often will do our best to stay away from. (laughs) Elect and foreknowledge. We we don't often like to examine those words or delve into them because of what uh, what we think that they might mean. Or we have to explain when we go to him. But I love how Peter just uses them so casually, even before he has actually greeted them. He's using words that we often don't like to uh, entertain. But he is using them in a way which just kind of seems casually. Of course they're on purpose. Which I think is incredibly fascinating and incredibly in character for Peter. But I think it's important that we don't let these words scare us. Election and foreknowledge. I think we should just kind of examine them. Because I think there's tremendous comfort to find them. So, really quick, elect. I'm not going to bore you with data, so to speak. But it literally means to be picked out or to be chosen. To be chosen by God. This word, elect, occurs 23 times in the New Testament. And four times in 1 Peter alone. Here and then three times in chapter 2. That word foreknowledge literally means pre-arrangement. Something that you have arranged beforehand or set in stone beforehand. And curiously, interestingly to me at least, this word only occurs twice in your New Testament. Here, by Peter. And then all the way back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 in a sermon delivered by Peter. Only twice is this word used, both coming from the same guy. And it's clear to me then that it is God's 
prearranged choice that these believers would find crucial and actually amazing comfort in. These scattered exiles, they could be comforted in and comforted by this prearranged choice of God. Choice of God for them. And for my own part, I don't think he's referring to sort of the doctrine of election as we are familiar with it. Unfortunately, I I would say, this will make some of my reformed friends a little bit churlish maybe, but that election term, I think, has been sort of robbed of its meaning by some of our Calvinistic friends. I would say actually he's reflecting on sort of the covenantal choice that God had with humanity. Let me kind of unpack what I mean by that. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, we went through and just kind of examined some of the covenants. The covenants that God makes with man. So, you know, you have the Adamic covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. You have the covenant that God makes with Noah. The covenant that God makes with Abraham and so on and so forth. David. There's several examples that we can go to where God is covenanting. He's promising. He's entering into a pre-arranged sort of almost contractual relationship with these people. This sort of a driving narrative of the Old Testament. And what's interesting, as we examined on Wednesday night, I should have brought a whiteboard to show you again. There's a cycle to these covenants that happens all throughout the Old Testament. Which is a covenant is made, a covenant is broken, and then a covenant is restored. (laughs) Almost always you will find this pattern. And the cycles can happen quickly or gradually in very extended lengths of time. But throughout the Old Testament, what do we find? We find a God who covenants with humans. Which, that in and of itself should be something that makes us marvel. Especially when he has all of the data that he could ever want. That humans are not good at keeping these things. They are continually breaking them. They are continually messing up. I think of the covenant that God makes with Moses at Mount Sinai. He is literally entering into it. And what are they doing outside? They're breaking it by making a golden calf. He's literally like a couple thousand feet up in the air. Talking with Moses. And they're, they're breaking the covenant right as he's trying to make it with them. If there's anything that sort of uh, speaks for human nature, it's that moment. The golden calf moment. But I think, regardless, anyways, that's sort of the truth that arises out of the Old Testament, if you study them, is that God continues to covenant with man despite his always breaking those promises, those covenants. So God is seen as this covenant maker, not just that, a covenant restorer, because he is always looking to restore that relationship. He's looking to restore the relationship that he had with man all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So you could say that God is bent on redemption. He's bent on reclaiming people for his glory. And I think that's what he has in mind here when Peter says elect exiles. They have been chosen pre-arranged, in a prearranged choice of God to be a part of this family. To be a part of the family of God. Let let me bring you to these verses. You can write them down or you can jump there too. This comes from Genesis chapter 17. 
This is what many would call the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to these words, uh, Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name in any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. And will make many make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed, very important word, after thee and their generations, for an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see... As is always the case, man has a really small view of what God wants to do. Abraham, I wonder what he was thinking when he was imagining this, quote, many nations. <laughs> when, when later on, or I think it's in chapter 15, um, is that, I think that's where he, said, he talks about how if you look up at the stars, that's how many, how many uh, your generations will be. And I imagine Abraham thinking as he's entering into uh, elderly life, nothing has happened yet as far as offspring. Oh, maybe he's just being a little bit hyperbolic. (laughs) He's just being a little bit exaggerate to just sort of uh, tell me about the glory of this promise. But I don't think Abraham sort of knew what he meant by many nations. If you go all the way to the first century, I don't think a lot of people still had the idea of what God meant by this many nations that are going to be a part of this promise. Such as why you have the Jews being so incredibly insistent that they were deserving of blessings when others weren't. Why it was so radical that Jesus was talking with other people who were not of the same race, not of the same lineage. Which is why it's even more remarkable where Paul is saying, I am apostle of the Gentiles. Because you have to see here that these many nations extends way beyond what Abraham could ever imagine. Because here in this promise is the promise that you and I today were part of this prearranged choice of God to be a part of the family of God. This Many nations includes nations from, as it says in Revelation 5 verse 9, nations and tribes and tongues. This is what he means that would be a part of this covenant family and covenant kingdom. It's nations from all walks of life and from all tremendous or all incredible backgrounds. And so we come again to First Peter. And when he says elect exiles... That's what I think he's referring to. That in this promise, he had already prearranged the fact that everyone who by faith believed in blood that was shed for their sins, for their faults, for all of their wickedness, they, they would be a part of this family. Because it's a family that is being brought into creation by this blood of Christ. 
Think about the tremendous comfort that would give these churches. That they are part of this incredibly uh, rich covenant tradition. Even in their exile. They, they are elect exiles that are, yes, they too are part of this prearranged choice of God. Reminds me of what, again, what Peter's friend Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Peter's talking about the same thing. That from before the foundations of the world, God had already arranged that you would be a part of his prearranged choice. To bring you into his covenant family. This is his sincerest desire. These many nations... (laughs) Are way bigger and broader and inclusive than you could ever imagine. And he, he is so adamant about making this a reality that I love. And if you're back in First Peter, I love verse 2. I love it so much because you notice who is active in verse 2. No, listen to this again. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through sanctification of the Spirit. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is so adamant about making this a reality. That all parts of the Trinity are active in making it possible. Father, Son, and Spirit. They All of the Godhead is active in bringing about your salvation. It's not just the Father doing something. It's not just the Son doing something. It's all three parts of the Trinity that are bringing about your salvation. And this is the remarkable fact that is true for Peter's readers. They could find tremendous comfort. But those covenant promises of blessing, it applied to them because they were part of the covenant by faith. They had been grafted in to Abraham's seed. They could find tremendous comfort in that. And it's true for us too. It's true for us even now. Here in the 21st century. That you and I. We are part of those many nations. We are part of the people of promise. Because of faith. We've been brought in by blood. And if our faith is in that blood. We are part of this family. The seed of Abraham. As it was talking about. The assurance of God's choice. I I can't imagine how comforting it would be to be reminded of that. In the introduction to a letter. As you are dealing, as these Christians were dealing with incredibly tumultuous times. They were reminded of God's choice. And they could be assured and comforted in that. But notice, jump down. Jump down to verse 10, because I think the second thing we have here, we have the assurance of God's choice, and here in verses 10 through 12, I think we have the assurance of God's plan. Notice what Paul, or excuse me, Peter says. 
Of what salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. Whence it was testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed. That not unto themselves but unto us that they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. By them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. (laughs) You see these. He he presses into another area. Another way in which these elect exiles could find comfort and assurance in their exile. In their persecution. And the fact that this salvation that they have been promised is a salvation that had been promised and prophesied long ago. It's all part of God's plan, so to speak. And salvation here has a a very specific meaning. It's not salvation necessarily from sin. It's salvation meaning sort of consummate salvation. Meaning the ultimate salvation to be experienced in the fulfillment and the establishment of the kingdom. That's sort of what it's implying. So in all things, in the end of all things, in the final analysis, so to speak, and Jesus is sitting as king, that's sort of what he's implying by this word salvation. So he's making this incredibly striking assertion that all of the scriptures have, leading, have been leading up and pointing to this moment in time in which you are part of the elect by faith, And that the salvation is yours by faith as well. And all of scripture has been leading up to this. It's been pointing to this. All of the prophets. They speak of this. They speak of this salvation through and by Christ. This is something that. I've found incredibly. I found to be an incredible passion for me. Scholars would call it biblical theology. Basically, it just means that all of these pages, 66 books, have a a thread running through them. That thread is Christ. And so far as we sort of cherry pick the verses and we cherry pick stories and we take them out of context to mean something that they don't, we will always be misunderstanding what they're there for. A student, maybe you haven't thought of this. You and I are students of the word. You haven't left school. You're still in school. Sunday school. You're, when you read the word, you are a student of it. That's what it means to be a disciple. Good students of the word then have to realize that the Bible has two meanings. Have you ever thought about that? It has, has two meanings. And what I mean by this is this. If you read, if you read any story from, let's say, 1 Samuel. There's a legitimate historical meaning to that story. Something happened in history. Something happened with real people in history. Centuries and ages ago. But there's also a double meaning to that passage. Because it's meant to point us to Jesus. The Old Testament is riddled with ways in which we can find Jesus in its pages and in its stories. And in its shadows, so to speak. Such is what Peter is hinting at here. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. 
All of the pages of scripture, they don't just unfold historical truth. They unfold theological truth. Specifically, truth about Jesus. Truth about, yes, the grace that should come unto you. So therefore, we can't understand the scriptures unless we understand them to be all about Jesus. He is their point. He is their narrative. He is their thread. He is the line that appears throughout them all. Luke 24, Peter, or Jesus himself makes this explicit. He says the same thing in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, I forget, I think it's 5 verse 38. Where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you think you have life in these things? All of the scriptures, they testify of me, he says. All of them? They're all about me. All the, the, all the Pentateuch books, the books of the law, all of the prophets, all of history, all of wisdom, all of that stuff, it's about me. And I'm here now, he's saying to the Pharisees. And here, Peter's saying the same thing, all of it. It's all part of been, it's all has, has been part of God's plan, hinting at this impending arrival of Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing that Peter has now saying. But all of those hints, all of those shadows, all of those prophecies, they've been fulfilled in Jesus. That's why it was so remarkable. If you go to Acts chapter 3 again, you can keep your finger in 1 Peter and turn back to Acts 3. Did you notice that's exactly what he was saying to the Sanhedrin? Excuse me while I get there. Acts 3. Look at what he says. Acts 3, 18. But those things... Which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer. He hath so fulfilled. It's happened. Jesus has come. The Christ. The Messiah. He's come and he suffered on behalf of your sins. And that's why he says repent ye therefore and be converted from your sin. That your sins may be blotted out. And the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He leans into that. That these prophets, they've spoken of Jesus. They've spoken of this redemptive plan of God. And he has come. <laughs> and remember what he says? You put him to death. You killed the prince of life. The one who was everywhere promised about, you killed him. Repent and believe. Because all of the the promises of redemption find their fulfillment in this Jesus of Nazareth. And he has come to suffer for all of the world's sin. He has come to suffer for our salvation. See, when he says in 1 Peter 1 verse 10, when he talks about that grace that should come unto you, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the grace that should come unto us. And I love this wonderful fact that Peter is is evidencing to his readers. Where can they find their comfort? In this thing called the Bible. In this thing called God's word. 
The scriptures are their comfort. Go to them. Find the plan of God that is being uh, uh, evidenced throughout all of the prophets, throughout all of the historical narratives and stories, throughout all the people that populate the Old Testament uh, stories. They speak of the plan of God to redeem the world from its sin through his son. All of the sort of opacity of that plan becomes increasingly less and less. And it becomes more and more clear as the Old Testament goes on. And he's saying, your comfort is in God's word. Peter, later on, I think it's in this chapter, he actually talks about the writings of Paul. He actually mentions how difficult they were to read. So even in his day... There were some letters that were being circulated by the Apostle Paul which were deemed scriptural. He's evidencing, it's evidence too. Find your comfort in the words of God. Not in anything else. Not in anything else around you. In the word of God. I am adamant about that because I know how, I know how often I neglect the word of God. That's weird to say as a pastor. (laughs) Sometimes it can be such that it's I'm just going to it to prepare for the next week's sermon or whatever. But I don't go to the word of God for myself. How often do you just sit with the word of God and just read it? And find the comfort that's there. There's, I, I could give you all sorts of data from all different surveys and from all different sort of uh, different places. Just know that one of the prevailing problems that's plaguing the church today is that people are not reading the Bible. They're not. That's why you have, there was a, a stat that came out the other day, and I'm probably making up the number, but just it's around this number. Almost 33% of people don't believe that Jesus was God. People in the church. You can only make that statement if you are not reading the scriptures. (laughs) If it's something that isn't important to you. Isn't something that is foundational to your life. Because everywhere, everywhere Jesus says that he is God. People who make that statement aren't reading the scriptures. You see, I think, for my own part, the circumstances that are around me can often drown out my sort of attentiveness to the word. And what Peter's reminding them of here, don't let that happen. You have not only been chosen by God. All of this has been prearranged as a part of his plan. And you can read the scriptures and find comfort. That he has chosen you to be a part of his family. He's chosen you. You can find tremendous comfort in that. But this plan of God. It cannot be hindered by anything that happens here in this life. We've been so burdened by that. The fact that there's so many things that appear to be stopping what God wants to do. God's not surprised by 2020. Anything that's happened. He's not shaken by it. 
I don't know what God's plan is. Maybe God's plan is to have sort of another great awakening. 2021 is going to be the year when that starts. It doesn't seem like that now, does it? But does that mean that it's not possible? No, because God's plans, whatever they are, they are absolutely going to happen. His plans of salvation, ultimate salvation in which we are enjoying peace, actual peace, real peace. That plan is unstoppable. No matter what happens in Washington, God's plans are unstoppable. The mission of the church cannot be thwarted by any sort of legislation. (laughs) Doesn't, I'm not trying to like pretend that I don't care what people in government say. Just it doesn't matter as much as what God says. Because what God says is true and his plans are always fulfilled. They are always successful. You know, in the eight, you remember the A-team? Remember the A-Team, the old TV land show where they shot a lot of people, but it never actually looked like they shot them? <laughs> they, there were so many bullets flying everywhere, and then they would crash, and the guys would come out coughing out of their helicopter. It's just, I always made me funny. I always find that so funny. Um, you know, they had that rolling car. It would just roll, and it would just roll and flip and flip and flip, and the, the guys who were driving it would just come out coughing. Like, there was no big deal. But I just remember every single time that one of those shows would happen... Who was it? Hannibal. Hannibal. What would he say? I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) God kind of says the same thing, except (laughs) he can always say that. His plans always come together. Even when it looks like they're not. Think about Abraham. He's 99 years old and he hasn't had a kid yet. And yet he's been promised, you're going to have many nations come out of you. Abraham, he takes matters into his own hands and that leads into another world of trouble. But regardless, it doesn't seem like it's possible. It doesn't seem like it's possible that God's plans could come together. But guess what? That's part of the plan of God. Even to these elect exiles who had put their faith in something and then been persecuted for that very faith. They could find comfort in the fact that God's plans cannot be thwarted. They cannot be uh, rendered void. All of God's plans of deliverance will come about. And this they could know from scripture. From God's word. God's words alone contain our comfort. To me, I've been moved by this fact. To spend time in scriptures because of what they speak to me about. They reveal the heart of Christ. I've, been, I, I've shared with Nathan a couple times. Pastor Nathan, um, there's this book that I, I grabbed it's called the um, Gentle and Lowly by a prominent evangelical author named Dane Ortland. I don't always mean to just drop book titles. I don't always mean to do that. But this one I found I found so incredibly comforting. It's a book that I would recommend only because it's a book that has short chapters, 
that you can easily digest in like a morning devotion type of thing. And every chapter deals with a new sort of aspect or facet of Jesus' heart. And specifically, as the subtitle reads of this book, he has a heart for sinners and sufferers. And I found just so much tremendous comfort in the words, not just the words that the author uses, but just the words that he describes about Jesus. Jesus is bent towards sinners and sufferers. He doesn't, rec- he doesn't draw away from them in their sin and suffering. He actually draws closer to them. He draws closer to them in their sin and suffering. So they can reveal more of his love and grace and patience and gentleness and mercy towards them. And I say that to say this. That that reality is what is revealed throughout the pages of scripture. That you have a savior whose heart is bent towards you. Why else do you think he would keep on covenanting with people that break their promises? Because God, the heart of God, is bent on salvation. Bent on redemption. Bent on bringing you into his family. He doesn't desire to punish people and throw them into hell for all eternity. He gets no joy out of that. His joy is in redemption and salvation from sin. And that we get out of the word of God. So, just like these scattered exiles that Peter was talking to, they can find assurance in God's choice of them and in God's plans for them. And it all comes out of the scriptures. The words of God. The words of God which give to us the true grace of God. Which sustains us, which supports us, which comforts us. In all, in all of our circumstances. In all of our wanderings. It's this word. It's this word that comforts us. Let's pray.